Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 6. Never seen so hot a storm. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to thank a new addition to the House of Lords, Jonathan Baron Sigurdsson. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we covered the sack of Wexford, the second major Irish town which faced Oliver Cromwell's army. In the middle of negotiating its surrender, Wexford's defenders fled the city walls in panic when the town's castle opened its gates. Seizing the initiative, the soldiers of the new model army scaled the walls with ladders and fell on the rallying garrison in the town market. Thousands were killed by the rampaging soldiers, including many civilians, and hundreds drowned in the harbour as small boats capsized, overcrowded with desperate people. This week, we will cover the last of Cromwell's dramatic nine months in Ireland, as the royalist cause faces setback after setback, divisions between ethnic and religious groups splinter their unity, and parliamentary armies appear unstoppable. One of the great weaknesses of the royalist coalition, papered over with the Second Dormant Peace Treaty, was the division between Protestant and Catholic. It's important to remember that for many English Protestants among the Royalists, especially those under Lord Inchiquin's command, the real enemy remained their current allies, the Catholic Irish. Their commander's defection back to the Royalist cause and the making of common cause with former Confederates was a very difficult pill to swallow for his troops. If you recall, Inchiquin had carefully managed his defection. When he announced that he would fight for the king, he had loyal troops ready to immediately arrest any officers who spoke out against it. In this way, he stopped any immediate mutiny, but he knew it was an unpopular decision among his men, which only got more unpopular when the alliance between Ormond and the Confederacy became official. Royalist successes in the first half of 1649 kept those naysayers at bay. They were on the winning side, after all. 
and that went a long way towards dampening any moral objections. Since Rathmines, the tide had turned on the Royalists and turned hard. And beyond wanting to be on the winning side, or perhaps not wanting to be on the opposite side to Cromwell after he started massacring garrisons, there was the fact that his presence, the presence of the new model army on Irish soil, offered dissident Protestant soldiers a viable alternative to serving alongside their former enemies in an alliance many of them despised. Enter Lord Broghill. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that Cromwell would soon be joined by Roger Boyle, Lord Broghill. The Boyles were a powerful new English family which had been divided by the Civil War. Broghill was the third son of the first Earl of Cork, and his older brother Richard, now the second Earl of Cork, had fought on the King's side in the English Civil War. Broghill had spent most of that war serving on the Parliamentarian side, usually undermining his de jure superior but regional rival, Lord Inchiquin. But as I mentioned a long time ago, despite being on different sides of the war, the Boyle offspring shared the same goal the security and expansion of their family lands in Ireland, and the safeguarding of the wider Protestant interest in Ireland. They just came at this objective with different methods, and in 1649 much of the Boyle portfolio was under the control of Ormond's Royalist coalition. The parliamentarian reconquest was Broghill's best chance to secure that property, and feather the family nest along the way by getting in the new regime's good graces. Well, Broghill arrived back in Ireland in October, after the sack of Wexford. To repeat a quote from Bennett, the uncomfortable alliance between Inchiquin's Protestant soldiers and their Confederation allies was beginning to fray at the edges, and Munster was one of those edges, end quote. Once Broghill landed, he set to work pulling at those fraying threads. Arriving on his Munster estates, Broghill drew on his family name and reputation, and quickly raised a regiment of infantry and a troop of cavalry. Broghill led this tiny army to the coast, where they boarded a ship for Cork. The garrison of Cork had wavered in its loyalty to Inchiquin more than once, and after coming to a deal with Cromwell by letter, on the 16th of October, the city firmly switched sides, defecting from Inchiquin and the Royalist Coalition, and back to Parliament. On the 3rd of November, Broghill sailed into Cork Harbour to a warm welcome. Though the terms of the garrison's defection had been agreed directly with Cromwell, as he was the one with the authority to make them stick, the Lord Lieutenant still ran his decisions by Broghill. With Cork secured, Broghill was placed in charge of these new troops, and sent out to carry on his good work. Of course, every good step for Cromwell and Broghill was a blow for Ormond and Inchiquin. Both men were humiliated by the defection of Cork, Inchiquin especially, as it had been his base of operations for years. But more than that, it was a strategic nightmare. Cork was one of the few remaining royalist ports and a substantial garrison, and both were now under parliamentary control. Morale under the Munster royalists plummeted, and Inchiquin's Protestant troops continued to defect in larger numbers buoyed up by the return of Broghill, who many knew and had served under. The political and military situation in Munster continued to shift towards Broghill. He soon captured the town of Dungarvan, vindicating Cromwell's decision to give the Munster grandee a military command. The desertions spread, 
many Protestants joined the victorious parliamentarians, and many Catholics either disarming and returning to civilian life, or staying as far away from the invading armies as possible. The morale of Ormond's army was in the toilet. The advance of parliamentarian forces, not just Cromwell's but those answering to Broghill in Munster and Coote and Venables in Ulster, seemed unstoppable. Towns and castles were falling left and right, and even those royalist troops who didn't desert or defect, Ormond was struggling to arm or pay them. Losing the ports was a devastating blow, because most of the royalist gunpowder was imported from Europe. In terms of cash, Ormond was struggling to raise any funds. In one case, the leaders of Limerick offered a mere £100 to Ormond's cause, which was such a small amount that the offer was refused out of principle. For comparison, the English Parliament paid out more than £430,000 for Cromwell's time in Ireland and a few months afterwards. This was so far beyond anything Ormond could muster. The Royalists did have one piece of good news to cling to. O'Neill was on the way. A vanguard of 2,000 men had already arrived in Ormond's camp. They needed supplies, and, as I mentioned, the Royalist Lord Deputy was struggling to feed and arm the men he already had. It didn't help that the ageing O'Neill was travelling south very slowly. O'Neill was incredibly ill, stricken with severe gout that made movement, like marching across a war-torn kingdom, absolute agony. He sent word ahead to Ormond, urging his new ally to avoid combat with Cromwell unless the situation was firmly to his advantage, and to otherwise let the autumn and winter weather do the bulk of the work. After taking New Ross, Cromwell ordered his troops to build a boat bridge in order to cross the River Barrow, the boundary between County Wexford and County Kilkenny, and more than one historian has noted that this was the point where Ormond could have dealt a devastating blow to the parliamentarian force, if he'd attacked. His subordinates urged him to make a stand at the Barrow. One, such as Major Benson, drew up a detailed plan for how to contest Cromwell's crossing without risking the main royalist army in a single battle. Indeed, Benson insisted that any battle had to be avoided until smaller victories could be tallied up. Smaller victories, like preventing Cromwell's crossing. Only after morale had picked up could a pitched battle be risked. Inchiquin concurred, urging Ormond to target Ormond's bridge before the whole force crossed. On the 6th of November, reports reached the royalist leadership that English troops were on the west bank of the river, preparing that side of the bridge. The Earl of Castlehaven also informed Ormond that his scouts saw no defensive preparations around this bridgehead, and joined his voice to Inchiquin and Benson in calling for an immediate attack. Unfortunately for the royalists, Ormond didn't agree with that course of action. With his army struggling to feed itself and defections running rampant, Ormond's natural preference for caution won out. Better to let the weather do the work. So it was that within a week, Cromwell's army was on the other side of the barrow, and there were many in the Royalist camp who were openly questioning Ormond's leadership. A Royalist pamphlet openly questioned why Ormond had not attempted to relieve Drogheda before its infamous sack. Ormond's brother-in-law, Viscount Muscury, warned the Lord Deputy that the bitterness of the past decade had not gone away, and he urged Ormond to show more favouritism to Irish forces instead of English, if only because the English kept deserting. 
another ally of Ormond warned him that if Cromwell's advance wasn't halted, the Irish would soon join the English in deserting the cause. In mid-November, the Marquis of Antrim, self-serving aristocrat par excellence, concurred that many former Confederates distrusted Ormond's leadership. His behaviour as their enemy, especially handing over Dublin to Parliament instead of the Confederacy in 1647, was a poisonous foundation for the current alliance. Further bad news soon reached him. Owen Roe O'Neill, the continental veteran with decades of military experience and one of the Royalists' best commanders, finally succumbed to his illness. Rumours spread that he had in fact been assassinated by agents of Parliament who feared his talent. But it's generally agreed nowadays that the general, in his 60s after decades of hard campaigning, died from complications from gout. Not as exciting, but far more likely. This bad news was slightly offset by news from Duncannon. This fort, one of the most modern in Ireland, guarded the harbour of Waterford, and was held by a former parliamentarian, Colonel Edward Wogan. Wogan had fought on the side of Parliament in the First Civil War, but then defected to the Scots for the Second Civil War, and then fled to Ireland after the Engager invasion failed. So when Henry Ireton turned up at its walls and demanded his surrender, Wogan was naturally a bit worried about what his fate would be if he did. His most likely fate would be a quick court-martial and execution. That is, if his former comrades didn't just have him shot. Maybe it was this drive of self-preservation that led to one of the best defences of a royalist fort during this campaign. At one point, he led a sally out of the fort and captured Ireton's artillery right from his siege lines. This forced Ireton to lift the siege, and Ormond finally got a scrap of good news. However, the political value of this victory was offset by the fact that Ormond had once again parachuted in a Protestant to replace a Catholic commander. This military decision worked out in this instance, but it seemed to be yet another example of the Lord Deputy showing favour to Protestants, and specifically to English. Cromwell's next major target was the town of Waterford, which Duncannon guarded. It was partly because of Wogan's successful defence of that fort that Cromwell would struggle to capture the town in December 1649. With his army suffering from dysentery and other diseases, and the weather getting worse, Cromwell lifted the siege of Waterford and withdrew his forces back to Dungarvan, where he established winter quarters. Disease ripped through Cromwell's ranks. Cromwell himself fell sick, and he'd only recover in late January. Others weren't so fortunate. Over a thousand men died, including Michael Jones on the 10th of December. Cromwell was deeply saddened by the loss of Jones. He liked and trusted Jones, and respected his abilities as a commander. Jones was a known quantity to the Royalists, and they knew he was a dangerous enemy to face. More than once, the approach of Jones was enough to force Royalist commanders to withdraw instead of risking a fight. But like O'Neill, disease didn't care how good a commander you were, and military campaigns were always rife with microscopic killers. Broghill, who was also in Dungarvan, later said, after the Restoration Mind, that he had visited Jones on his deathbed, where the dying cavalry commander begged Broghill to remove Cromwell from power for the good of all. But, like his claim to have been threatened into supporting the Commonwealth regime, this was probably nonsense meant to make Broghill look more detached from Cromwell than he actually was. As 1649 gave way to 1650, 
Cromwell could view his campaign so far as a resounding success. Parliamentarian forces now controlled the north, the east, and most of the south coast of Ireland. His enemies appeared unable to stop him, and their alliance was breaking down. But it was not all sunshine and roses. He was, after all, surrounded by diseased and dying men in the depths of an Irish winter. He'd lost thousands of soldiers to battle and disease, and that was with the ever-present support of the English fleet. In the coming year, he would have to march deeper into Ireland, away from those comforting shorelines. He was still supremely confident. He had God on his side, after all. But in his own sickbed, he knew it wasn't going to be an easy campaign. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Across the lines, Ormond's forces also retired to winter quarters, and on the 15th of December, the Royalist Lord Deputy wrote to Charles II. Charles had travelled to the island of Jersey in the English Channel, in preparation for the next leg of his journey to Ireland. Ormond warned the king that the situation had dramatically reversed since earlier in the year, and he could no longer guarantee his safety, or that Ireland would be a viable choice for a royal return. The Royalist coalition was shaky, and the ethnic and religious divisions were beginning to split the cause apart. During the earlier siege, the mayor of Waterford informed Ormond that reinforcements were needed, but perhaps in a sign of how fractious the relationship between Catholic and Protestant now was, he insisted that Ormond's Protestant troops not be sent, and instead welcomed the resolutely Catholic Ulsterman. Another sign of this breakdown can be seen in Limerick where the Protestant Earl of Roscommon died after enjoying a night on the town, and then slipping and knocking his head. That wasn't the scandal 
although he was Ormond's vice-treasurer and a valuable ally. Now, as the Earl lay dying, apparently comatose, a group of Catholic bishops entered his chambers and, they claimed, oversaw his deathbed conversion to Catholicism. The Protestant Bishop of Derry did not believe this claim, and the battle over the Earl's corpse divided Limerick along sectarian lines. At one point, the Catholic Bishop of Limerick, while insisting that the Earl had indeed converted back to Rome, for the sake of public tranquillity, he said he could be buried alongside the Protestant Earls of Tormund, without any fanfare. But then he changed his mind, and insisted the body could not be removed from Limerick. A few weeks later, the Catholic bishops of Ireland gathered at the monastic site of Cluan Vignosh and gave a surprising display of unity. These were powerful and ambitious men who vied between themselves for power and influence, both of which had been effectively sidelined with the Second Ormond Peace. Now they came together, in the face of the threat of Cromwell, to urge all Catholics, Gaelic or Old English, and any New English or Scots who backed the Royalist cause to put aside their petty differences and unite in the face of the true enemy. Echoing the words of the Confederation Oath, they called for a shared effort for the, quote, advancement of his majesty's rights and the good of this nation in general, end quote. Ormond was genuinely surprised by this declaration. The clerics were no fans of his, or of the treaty which had removed so much of their power, and there had been a decent chance that the declaration which came out of Cloan Vignosh would have attacked his authority. That said, though it called for unity among all royalists, it wasn't missed by anyone that the declaration didn't call for unity behind Ormond. Around this same time, Ormond had Antrim hauled before him under accusations that he had been collaborating with Parliament in the hope of securing an accommodation between Catholics and independents, and helped convince the garrison of New Ross to surrender. Antrim only confessed to defaming Inchiquin, but probably because of how influential the Marquis was, he wasn't punished. His welcome truly worn out, Antrim ran back north to Ulster, and a few months later, he did indeed join forces with the English Parliament. Many more soon openly and secretly began to undermine Ormond's authority, including many moderates who had previously backed him. As Ormond prepared for the coming campaign season, once again, the legacy of Drogheda and Wexford played havoc. The civilian leadership in both Limerick and Clonmel, and elsewhere, resisted the appointment of royalist garrisons. A common sentiment was that royalist garrisons only invited Cromwell's attention, and then their refusal to surrender doomed the citizenry, regardless of any civilian wishes to give up. It also has to be noted that the arrival of garrisons, especially in towns and cities which hadn't seen fighting in years, encroached on the civilian authority, and that was rarely welcomed by those urban elites. In January 1650, Cromwell restarted his campaign. He responded to the declaration of Cluan Vignosh, which predictably railed against the Catholic hierarchy and accused them of only aiming to maintain their power over the ordinary Irish people. To those Irish people, he said he was in Ireland to avenge the massacres of 1641, but he swore that they would be treated with all the rights of Englishmen if they disarmed, surrendered, and, most of all, didn't practice Catholic worship. This document also reveals a surprising sensitivity over the events of Drogheda and Wexford. He challenged his critics to, quote, give us an instance of one man since my coming into Ireland 
not in arms, massacred, destroyed, or banished. The citizenry of Wexford and Drogheda might have answered, if they'd been able to, but Cromwell gave himself an out. Justice had always, quote, been done or endeavoured to be done. Oshukru highlights that this caveat, quote, not only justified the atrocities committed by his troops since August, but also exposed an unexpected degree of sensitivity to criticism. Cromwell, unlike some of his subsequent apologists, was clearly troubled by some of what he had seen at Drogheda and Wexford, end quote. After publishing his response, Cromwell, now back in good health, set out from Dungarvan on the 29th of January. He had no time to spare. Cromwell was running out of time because rumours had reached him that London was getting nervous. Scotland was still negotiating with the king in exile, and Lord Fairfax was not an option, more in a future episode. So Parliament soon requested that the Council of State summon Cromwell back to England. But Cromwell wasn't ready to go yet. He still needed to settle the Irish war to his satisfaction. He didn't plan to stay in the kingdom until every ember of resistance to parliamentary rule was dealt with, but he needed to put out the major fires. So despite receiving formal orders from the Council of State to return, Cromwell would ignore their pleas for another three months. The renewed campaign speared towards Kilkenny, the former Confederate and now Royalist capital. The speed and timing of the advance took the Royalists by surprise. It was a relatively mild January, and with fresh supplies and reinforcements right off the boat, this allowed Cromwell to start the campaign season far earlier than the Royalists expected. One of those reinforcing regiments was led by Cromwell's son, Henry, and he was seconded under Broghill. Cromwell had made sure to visit the garrisons around Dungarvan and saw that their needs were met, and it can't be understated how effective this considerate approach to the men under his command was. Ormond was struggling to find men to fight for him. Cromwell was now surrounded by men who would die for him. The army was split into three columns, one led by Cromwell, one by Colonel Reynolds, and the reserve by Henry Ireton. They marched quickly through the Irish countryside. Ireton's role appears to have been to seize key river crossings and clear the waterways, all to allow ships to sail up the rivers carrying the artillery. This kept the rest of the army moving quickly. At one point, Ireton captured a castle near Gowron. Because the defenders hadn't immediately surrendered, when the fort was taken, Ireton had the officers shot. But the ordinary soldiers were spared. Meanwhile, Broghill was sent to secure the southern flank of this advance, as well as ensure that Munster remained out of Inchiquin's grasp. He besieged Old Castletown, and, after firing a few artillery shots, it quickly surrendered. But because the defenders had refused the initial summons, Broghill had all six officers shot. Again, the rank and file were given quarter. Later, after a skirmish, Broghill had three of four captured royalist officers shot for having betrayed Parliament. As happened the previous year, Broghill's campaign, and importantly, his successes, encouraged fervent affections. For this campaign, speed was all. When Cromwell reached a walled town in Tipperary, he had no artillery or ladders, because they were presumably aboard the ships escorted by Ireton. So Cromwell, refusing to get bogged down, offered very generous terms, and the town surrendered without a siege. The news of this spooked other royalist garrisons, including the one at Cashel, who fled at the sight of the advancing army, 
and allowed the town to be taken without a fight and possibly avoiding a second sack of Cashel. The formidable Care Castle, which guarded a crossing point on the river shore, was vulnerable to modern artillery, and after some fierce resistance the royalist commander surrendered, and the lines of communication between Limerick and Clonmel were cut. Care's commander was Ormond's half-brother, and Ormond furiously ordered his sibling to come and answer for his actions. But their mother, Lady Turles, backed up the half-brother, and he openly refused the Lord Deputy's summons. Another blow to Ormond's increasingly fragile authority. By the 3rd of February, Reynolds and Ireton were just ten miles south of Kilkenny, and easily captured the town of Callan. Ormond simply wasn't prepared to respond to this. His men were still scattered in their winter quarters, and even calling for the release of all imprisoned soldiers, except for those waiting execution, was not enough. With the imminent arrival of Cromwell, Ormond and the commissioners of treaty, the entire royalist government, such as it was, fled Kilkenny. Cromwell's army continued to destroy any royalist control over South Leinster and isolated Kilkenny. A rare offensive from the Royalist Earl of Castlehaven on the 10th of March recaptured a town, and he took hundreds of parliamentarian prisoners. But calls for support from Viscount Dillon, who refused on the dubious grounds that he needed to keep his men in North Leinster to protect against, of all things, Ulster Catholic troops passing through, Castlehaven was unable to press the advantage, and he released his prisoners. Lord Inchiquin was intercepted by his old frenemy, Lord Broghill, and his forces were routed. He withdrew into the province of Connacht, and took the remaining Protestant soldiers under his command with him. Then, on the 22nd of March, Cromwell led 4,000 infantry and cavalry, and summoned Kilkenny to surrender. The governor, Sir Walter Butler, refused, and Cromwell's guns opened up. For five days, 300 defenders held the walls, inflicting heavy casualties on Cromwell's army. But soon, Ireton arrived with 1,500 more men, and Butler accepted reality. His defence was fierce and well-led and well-fought, but without reinforcements of his own, the eventual result would still be defeat. To spare the civilian population, on the 27th of March he agreed terms with Cromwell. He was allowed to lead his garrison out of the city with all their supplies and arms. The Confederate, and now Royalist capital, was in parliamentary hands. But Cromwell wasn't finished. He had one more stronghold to capture before he could return to England. Clonmel, about 10 miles east of Care Castle and 30 miles southwest of Kilkenny. Unlike Kilkenny, Clonmel was defended by a large garrison of 1,500 men, mostly Ulster Catholics under the command of one Hugh Dove O'Neill, the nephew of the late Owen Roe O'Neill. Like his uncle, this O'Neill was a hardened veteran of Spanish service. Clonmel was a decently fortified position, protected by 25-foot walls and a deep ditch. Its south side was protected by the river shore, and the east and west by swampland, meaning the only viable direction of sustained attack would come from the north. After Care Castle fell, Ormond assured O'Neill that he would send every man he could to defend Clonmel. But when Cromwell approached in force in April, O'Neill was hung out to dry. Ormond appears to have been paralysed by indecision, despite the pleading of O'Neill for more men in order to, quote, prevent any bloody tragedy to be acted here, as in other places, for want of timely relief. 
Ormond held what many still commanded back, and instead reinforced Limerick, which wasn't in immediate danger. But it wasn't simply Ormond's failing. Castlehaven's force, still in Leinster, had too few infantry to effectively support O'Neill. Clan Rickard remained holed up in Connacht and refused to leave it. One royalist relief attempt of 2,000 men came from County Kerry on the 10th of May, but Broghill was prepared and intercepted it, killing around 600 men, including the Bishop of Ross. That bishop had been captured and he was executed the following day. Through Cromwell's strategy of three mutually assisting columns, Clonmel was effectively isolated. No help was coming. Parliamentarian forces had maintained a loose cordon around Clonmel since February, limiting the supplies that could enter the town, and disease and starvation had done their grim work. When Cromwell arrived on the 27th of April, he issued his summons to surrender. With an army of 9,000 at his back, after a relentless succession of victories across the entire front, Cromwell was confident. O'Neill was not easily cowed, though. He refused, and as Cromwell prepared his siege lines, his defence was certainly proactive. He led multiple sallies out of the walls to disrupt the attacker's preparations. As was the case earlier in the campaign, Cromwell had raced ahead of his slower artillery, so it took two weeks for the main siege guns to arrive. When they did, despite the efforts of O'Neill, they had prepared positions ready for them. The artillery bombarded Clonmel's walls and eventually forced a breach. But O'Neill was ready. It had taken time for the guns to do their work, and he had prepared a trap. Five-foot-high barricades were built around the breach, using the rubble from the bombardment and blocking off the street on the other side of the wall. Cromwell, as we mentioned in the episode on Drogheda, had a very straightforward approach to siege warfare. Porrig Lenehan goes so far as to call it crude. It had worked so far, even with the bloody fighting outside St Mary's Church at Drogheda. It would not work here. Because when Cromwell ordered his frontal assault on the 17th of May, right into the breach, the infantry found themselves in a closed-off space, completely blocked in every direction. More soldiers then entered the breach, which pushed those at the front forward. When O'Neill judged that enough of the enemy was inside, about a thousand, he revealed his trap. Hundreds of musketeers rose from behind the barricades and fired en masse into the compact infantry. Two artillery pieces were then wheeled out of hiding and fired almost point-blank into the enemy. With nowhere to go, no cover, and their comrades still pushing inside, the new model infantry were trapped in O'Neill's killing field. Cromwell and the cavalry were waiting at the gates of Clonmel, ready to sweep inside once the infantry secured the walls. Instead, they heard the screams and shouts of parliamentary infantry being slaughtered, and, worryingly, a few cannons. Then, they watched as the first wave fell back, some retreating, others just running. Cromwell's officers rallied the foot soldiers and a second attempt was made, which also failed with bloody results. A third attempt was made, this time with dismounted cavalry leading the way. Heavily armoured, even without their mounts, they could surely force their way inside. They could not. The barrage of guns and artillery scythed through the attackers, and after hours of fighting, Cromwell watched as the survivors fled over the bodies of their comrades. In all, this day was the single deadliest moment in the entire history of the New Model Army. 
Cromwell had suffered between 1,500 and 2,500 casualties, the single largest loss of life in any of the army's past or future campaigns in England, Ireland or Scotland. A parliamentary witness reported that the defenders of Clonmel were, quote, the stoutest enemy that ever was found by our army in Ireland, and it is in my opinion, and very many more, that there was never seen so hot a storm of so long a continuance, and so gallantly defended, neither in England nor Ireland, end quote. Despite this, Cromwell was determined that he would renew the attack the following day. Fortunately for his men, O'Neill had other ideas. His men were exhausted and, more importantly, out of ammunition. Shooting 2,000 ducks in a barrel will do that. Over that night, they slipped out the south gate and over the bridge and headed directly for Waterford. The next morning, the mayor of Clonmel agreed terms of surrender with Cromwell. When the Lord Lieutenant entered the town and discovered that the enemy had fled in the night, he was furious. He swore that, quote, by God above, he would follow that Hugh Dove O'Neill wheresoever he went. He dispatched a force of cavalry to chase down the fleeing garrison, which managed to kill about 200 of them, including many civilian camp followers. But within Clonmel, Cromwell took no reprisals. Instead, he prepared himself to sail home. The war in Ireland was not over. Ormond still claimed leadership of the Royalist cause, and Royalists still controlled large portions of the kingdom. But Cromwell was satisfied that the back of the Royalist cause had been broken. Parliament now controlled all the major ports on the north, east and south coasts of Ireland, the Royalist capital of Kilkenny had fallen, and their armies were divided, demoralised and in retreat. The threat posed to Republican England by Royalist Ireland was dead. Charles Stuart would have a hard time using Ireland as a base for a restoration. Because that was also part of the reason Cromwell considered his mission accomplished. A deal had finally been struck between the would-be king and his Scottish subjects earlier in May. It was now Scotland that Cromwell perceived to be the greatest threat to the Commonwealth. A week after the surrender of Clonmel, Cromwell sailed back to Britain. He left his son-in-law, Henry Ireton, to continue the fight. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkis, the Marquess of Buckingham, Daryl Parker, and the Earl of Widdicombe, Brennan Sherry. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.